You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome to the session on using analysis to help improve resource allocations. Uh, so my name is Maya King. I'm a lecturer in economics in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. I'm also another of the CAPE alumni, so I'm also a research associate at ODI. And uh, a project I'm working on at the moment is about the recent history of um, spending control in the UK Treasury, so since the early 90s. So I think there's a lot of interesting parallels here. Uh, so we're used to thinking about allocation as one of the three objectives of PFM. And we probably can also all think of bad examples of misallocation, so teachers without textbooks, capital expenditure without maintenance, and clinics without drugs. Um, but um, So in this session we want to talk about analysis as a tool to try and tackle some of those issues. Um, but the idea is to also think about that uh, combination of allocation and analysis as a way that we can connect, make connections between sector ministries and finance ministries in some of the issues we've been discussing in the previous session and also to connect between the technical side of uh, these issues and the political issues. So that's the challenge that we're going to to set our speakers and um, also I want to set the other challenge that came out that I thought came out of the previous session which is in what cases do finance ministries should they do more and in what cases should they do less? So that's one of the challenges I want to set us. So we've got four excellent speakers to look at these issues. Our first speaker today is Andrew Blasey, who is Deputy Head of PFM and Budgeting at the OECD's Public Government's Directorate. And prior to that, he was the Budget Director of the New Zealand Treasury. Uh, then we have Sagai Teklasalasi, who is a Senior Researcher at the Policy Studies Institute in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and he coordinates the Human Development and Labour Studies Research Centre at PSI and has recently been involved in supporting the Ministry of Finance conduct a value for money study in the health sector. Then we have Kenneth Mugambe, who is Director of Budget in Uganda's Ministry of Finance, Planning and Economic Development, and he's been working in that post for seven years, so he's going to bring that perspective to us. And then we have Paolo Dorenzio, who's our discussant. And um, I'm particularly grateful to Paolo for stepping in at the last minute for um, Fiona Davies. I'm not Fiona Davies. <laughs> <laughs> who was unable to make it due to a footballing injury, apparently. So, uh, and Paolo is a senior research fellow at the International Budget Partnership and is also a research associate at ODI. So, um, back to Andrew, and uh, if you can <coughs> kick us off, please. And you all have 10 minutes to speak. Thank you. Right. Okay, I'm on the clock. Um, well, thank you. It's um, a, a delight to be here. It's my first time to come along to this uh, conference, and uh, everyone who I spoke to would say, oh, um, you must go to these. They're good fun. Uh, and so uh, with that kind of um, uh, recommendation, it's uh, even, more, um, or even more a pleasure to be here. Uh, OECD and coming along to ODI, I'm, I was sort of intimidated by being here in your um, presence because I was mindful that uh, our membership is quite different from the countries that ODI uh, work with, and so therefore there will be limitations around uh, some of the examples that I, I might identify, and um, uh, but how uh, there is a, um, a common dynamic, if you like, of, of uh, learning uh, from practices and recognising that there is no one um, solution to, to, some of these, uh, to some of these challenges. And that's certainly no different with the uh, 36 members of, uh, of the um, OECD. 
Um, 36, Lithuania joined in 2018. Uh, we've all got all but two more members in terms of uh, Colombia and Costa Rica uh, who are in the final um, stages of, of joining as well. Uh, and probably for uh, uh, my own time and the team that I work with, half of that is with non-OECD countries, where the question we're asked the most is, uh, for the level of development or economic uh, wealth that country A is at, what were OECD countries doing at that stage of development in their path? Uh, and you know, can you backdate some of those experiences or look at some of the maturity effects uh, that have occurred uh, in the path of OECD countries? I wish it was always that simple. Uh, the question's nice and simple, but um, uh, haven't always found that the, the answers uh, are, certainly, certainly not yet. Um, so uh, uh, a lot of the work too is on a regional basis, and I suppose the regions we work most with are um, with Asia, Central Europe and Latin America, uh, reflecting really where our members have relations with non-members. Uh, and again, that, that tends to be a way of bringing, um, bringing people uh, together. Um, uh, I, I, um, I say all this on purpose because I was at a, um, a, a, an event similar to this a wee while ago and someone in question time said to me, yes, that's very nice, but what is the OECD? Uh, and, and I realised, well, I should make a start by at least introducing and not assuming uh, that people uh, know what the OECD uh, is. So um, analysis and uh, the allocation of, uh, of resources. Um, uh, uh, I, I really liked the, the intro um, brief and the booklet in terms of distinguishing between a budget and between um, spending reviews uh, in terms of, of two devices, one looking at the margin obviously and the other looking at, at the base. Uh, but what, what um, uh, really uh, that I liked about that was both uh, are political events as well as technical events, they are political events. And so uh, in, the, in one sense the budget will never go away, it's the most effective way of a government communicating its priorities. Uh, it's probably the only device of government that touches every part of government uh, once a year. Uh, some cabinet ministers don't even meet once a year, but they do get a budget. Uh, and. Uh, uh, that's, that's pretty remarkable as a, as a tool of, of government and, and how it's used. Um, uh, but in terms of whether it achieves uh, uh, allocative efficiency for, for resources is I think a really um, interesting challenge from the, a question in, the, in, the, um, in the, this morning's session. Because uh, it gave me thought, uh, pause for thought about the fact that uh, it's time constrained. So there's not actually a lot of uh, time to do in-depth analysis uh, in the period of the budget cycle. Uh, uh, often the capacity constraints are um, high in the Ministry of Finance, let alone the line ministry that might be submitting the um, spending proposal. Uh, and um, uh, there can often be a mismatch in, in, in the requirements between, say, uh, a capital expenditure item and a, and a current expenditure item, where one's had to go through a lengthy period of business cases and uh, an assessment, and the other one's just had a junior analyst write it up in the two months before it was due for the deadline for the budget cycle. Uh, I'm being a little bit um, uh, flippant, but there, there is definitely, I think, uh, a difference in, in uh, treatment. So uh, um, does it achieve um, efficiency? I think it achieves it where uh, there is an excess of expenditure. 
proposals relative to the, the resources available. Because at that point there's a competition, at that point there is some assessment whether it's at the technical level of a cost-benefit analysis or some form of review, but also at a political level around what is the government's priority. And uh, uh, that that uh, brings, you know, in, its, in of itself, different different dimensions there of how that critique is occurring. Um, what we're seeing across the OECD countries, though, is a lot of focus on um, outcomes as an organising framework. And what's interesting is that the outcomes vary. Some are interested in uh, sustainable development goals. Others are interested in uh, well-being. Some are interested in uh, environment in terms of a subset of, uh, of uh, SDGs and what they're prioritising. Uh, others might be around gender equality in terms of a, a specific um, outcome within uh, within a, a, a greater number that the government is uh, is targeting, um, but it's it's highlighted the challenge of uh, of uh, uh, which aspects of or which um, uh, measures from national statistics are actually helpful. What is the lag effect of that? And with it, while there's some integrity from using national statistics uh, for a base, a political frustration of yes, we won't see it for three years and there's an election before then. Uh, and so it might be the most uh, uh, credible source of information to help organise and help assess uh, the merits of a proposal, but it's just not timely relative to what needs to be communicated through a, through a political event. Um, then we get to, to spending reviews, which seems to be a very fashionable um, topic uh, at the moment. And uh, uh, what was observing actually over lunch was the fact that it's such a generic term. Countries are undertaking so many different forms of uh, spending reviews. We almost need some kind of new Uber uh, uh, label above it or something beneath it to identify uh, just what's actually happening. Is it a review of a whole organisation? Is it a policy programme? Is it uh, you know, just, just what is this particular thing that, that's being uh, reviewed? Um, say it's a political event as well and I think that's fundamental in distinguishing it from uh, an evaluation uh, because essentially it's saying to a minister uh, the outcome of this may well change uh, the size and nature of your portfolio and so if that's not political in terms of whether it gets support or not then there's really hard to know what what is in terms of what a minister thought he or she was signing up for. Uh, and so the governance and the, the, the way in which a spending review is led is really um, crucial in, in this. Um, we uh, uh, see that basically every OECD, OECD country is undertaking spending reviews. Uh, resource constraint exists, uh, con constraint uh, uh, exists with an OECD country as much as it does another country and looking into the base uh, of expenditure is just as crucial. Um, uh, what's been interesting is to see how the use of spending reviews, though, has changed over the last 10 years. After the global financial crisis, we saw the evidence showed that spending reviews were predominantly used to identify savings. And where a government had a deficit as a, from, resulting from the global financial crisis, then actually everyone rallying together across line ministries to take a cut of 5% or whatever that figure is to help restore national finances, that that was an effective tool of doing it. As, as fiscal balances became stronger, those savings did, did not come through in the same way. As the countries got healthier, 
uh, fiscally, uh, then uh, saw that actually the preparedness of a permanent secretary, a chief executive of a ministry to uh, give up money when they could see the national accounts were doing all right, that uh, national uh, uh, contribution started to, to uh, uh, ease back. But it, it, subst it substituted itself though with, is the policy effective? Are there risks there around it? That may not be a saving this year, but there may be a nasty surprise for the government in a future year, and it's worth uh, bringing that to the forefront now. Uh, were, are there capacity constraints which were actually never really thought about too much at the time policy was uh, put in place? It was just really an instruction to get on with it and show some results and a chance to, to go back and look at that. In other cases, uh, it's, it's uh, that a spending review um, uh, reveals what's occurred post a merger of two ministries that really at the time of organisational change, again, a great desire to show progress but not necessarily address the fact that there were duplicate offices doing the same thing or legacy computer systems, sometimes which will be um, uh, expressed in legislation and there will be a cost structure there that's driven from dated legislation and uh, uh, spending review as a way to help help uh, surface that. Um, really challenging uh, process uh, and uh, I think we've seen some very good examples of where um, external organisations have been helpful for critiquing what is effective as well. The one that comes to mind is the Global Fund uh, for the Eradication of, uh, of AIDS, HIV, uh, that's the wave for 10 minutes. Uh, but the intervention logic for a specific purpose organisation like that provides a very clear critique around a, a, uh, the effectiveness of a programme and useful for be being um, brought into spending reviews, particularly where they're targeted uh, uh, reviews. Um, Two minutes just finally. to wind, wind up. What? What's that? Sorry. And finally. And finally, yes, <laughs> yes. That brings me to, uh, but no, I'm very uh, mindful of uh, uh, challenges around this and the fact that spending reviews are um, difficult to undertake. It's hard enough to uh, for a Ministry of Finance to know what questions to ask, let alone think it's in a position to know what the answer is. Have been impressed by uh, countries like Slovakia that have set up a, a value for money unit in terms of that catchphrase this morning uh, uh, to undertake a program of spending reviews uh, and uh, are deliberately upskilling their own own uh, team before they think they can go out to uh, line ministries uh, to do that. Um, have seen some some um, the fact that that when these programs uh, when these reviews occur for the first time there can often be a, a work program uh, of um, identifying for example oh there was lots of gaps in performance information perhaps we can work on that it wasn't actually a reason not to do the review it just created a, a set of recommendations or set of actions to then put in place to to go from it um, so improvements that can occur that aren't necessarily financial but do strengthen the system uh, and uh, uh, with that seeing uh, an ever greater number of, uh, of countries take, take them up. Even you know, non-OECD non countries, this is not uh, meant to be for OECD countries uh, uh, as, as an observation in the sense that uh, I look at um, Thailand and how it's uh, integrated into its budget cycle uh, and go actually that's well advanced beyond many OECD countries where they'll conduct spending reviews but won't necessarily connect it to the budget. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe not intentionally, 
but sometimes the timing doesn't work and then it loses momentum or other reasons for just just the events of life uh, and yet something that's very systematized in, in an example like uh, like Thailand. I should pause and not take up my um, colleagues time. Thank you. Thank you very much Andrew. Thank you very much. Now we're going to pass to Segai who's going to talk about value for money in Ethiopia. Yeah. Thank you very much Maya and thank you ODI for inviting me to this event. Um, so my talk is going to be based on our experience uh, in supporting the Ministry of Finance uh, and the Ministry of Health in conducting value for money analysis in, in the health sector. Uh, and also uh, on a study that we, we did on um, fiscal equity uh, in the country. Um, um, so this, these two projects are one of many projects uh, Fiscas is uh, doing in Ethiopia, supporting different uh, ministries. Um, so like many other countries, um, sector ministries uh, come up with their plans for the, for the year and then ask the Ministry of Finance for, for the budget. The Ministry of Finance approves the budget and then there is no connection, there is no talk. Uh, and then the, the Parliament are always asking the Ministry of Finance um, why a certain project was financed and why not another one? Why no airport in my village? Why no industrial park in my village? And the Ministry of Finance has no answer to these questions. Um, so this kind of practice, like uh, studying a value for money in the, in the different sectors, um, can help the Ministry of Finance uh, answer some of the questions and also establish a relationship with the different sector ministries. And this uh, value for money, we, we, we did not do it. Uh, the idea is to sort of uh, guide people in the Ministry of Finance and in the sector ministries to do value for money analysis uh, on their own. So we were just... Uh, helping them uh, to do that. Um, uh, so, uh, based on these two uh, projects, um, uh, the challenges of uh, doing a value for money analysis or spending review, even in Europe, we heard it, it's very difficult. So you can imagine how difficult it is in a developing country context. So unless you come up with a very simple tool uh, where uh, experts and uh, civil servants that can understand and do uh, then there is no point if it's a cause complicated value for money analysis. So this is a very, very simple and intuitive. Uh, so, they, so they look at the spending, the inputs, the, the, the finance, and then the outputs. So in the health sector, it would be building uh, health facilities, and then the outcomes. Uh, it could be um, maternal mortality or child mortality. So kind of in a very simple way to find a relationship between these three. Uh, so, so the challenges uh, we faced uh, in this uh, exercise, I'm going to talk about those. Um, uh, one is the lack of uh, consistent budget uh, or expenditure classification. So, of course, it, with a very complicated value for money, money analysis, maybe you don't need this. But if you want a simple value for money analysis, then you need to have a sort of consistent uh, budget program. Whether budget program is good or not is debatable. Uh, but for the sort of simple value for money analysis, this would have made it very, uh, very easy. Um, uh, another, another, another problem we faced is, uh, you know, in a federal system like Ethiopia, where the regions have uh, quite significant autonomy in spending, uh, and also in, 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 in collecting uh, revenue. So what happens is uh, every year uh, the federal uh, revenue 
is distributed to different regions in a block grant. Uh, and there is a formula based on population and other things. And, and, and actually, recently, the formula is based on uh, expenditure need. Uh, and also revenue potential uh, of the regions. Now, you do an analysis and then um, uh, you come up with, you know, um, what uh, proportion a certain region gets and what proportion other region gets. But the problem is, if it depends on the expenditure need, the regions have an incentive to underspend on sort of capital. So they, 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 they tend to spend it in, in recurrent expenditures so because they know next year they will get a higher, uh, a higher sort of budget. Uh, so this kind of makes, even though you're really doing an analysis, um, actually, uh, there is sort of incentive problem with this one. Another thing is, um, you know, there is a lot of uh, decentralization in the country. Uh, it's a good thing. But there is variation in, in capacity in the, in, in the different regions, even, even at federal level, let alone at, at the different administrative levels. Uh, so there is a problem in using data and analysis when doing budgets. Um, there is no system of imp impact assessment in the country. So what we focus is uh, on the outputs. So we build this number of health facilities, this number of schools, this number of universities, uh, but there is no system of actually measuring the, the outcomes. Um, it's very complicated, as you know. Um, but now recently, the Planning and Development Commission are saying that they are going to go, they're going to start to sort of measuring outcomes rather than uh, just outputs. But there is a significant capacity uh, limitation. And in, in countries like Ethiopia, civil working for the ministries for civil service is not interesting, is not uh, attractive. Uh, so uh, all, you know, the good talent, they are going to NGOs or to multinational organizations. So, so, so that's, that's, um, that's going to be a big, big, big challenge. And there is difference in uh, uh, budget uh, execution in the different regions. Even though with your analysis you come up, a certain region uh, requires more, more budget. But then you see that in the last year, even the budget they had, they didn't really use it. So it, it, it makes, even though it makes the use of analysis <laughs> less relevant, uh, unfortunately, because of this, this capacity uh, problem. Another problem we, we sort of faced uh, was the, the disconnect between the Ministry of Finance and the different uh, ministries. So it was very difficult to, to bring the Ministry of Health on board at the beginning because they thought this aimed at cutting their budget. So, <laughs> uh, but later the sort of the relationship became more, they, they, they understood. And then one of the key results of this exercise was actually to sort of create this connection between Ministry of Finance and Ministry of Health. And we are also hoping to do the same with the Ministry of uh, Education. And hopefully in the future, the Ministry of Finance and the different ministries will do this uh, on their own. Uh, another challenge is some of the things are, 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 are politically decided because a federal system like Ethiopia, it's, it's very, very sensitive. Um, so, um, for example, you, you have heard about the industrial parks in the country. And if you look at the map, the industrial parks are actually <laughs> evenly distributed. So even though uh, originally industrial parks, the idea of industrial parks was sort of economic feasibility, right? Uh, but then, because uh, every uh, region, you know, wants this, uh, some of the decision had to be made, uh, not because of uh, 
because it was economically feasible, but because there was a lot of political uh, pressure. This is probably less problematic in countries which are homogeneous or more sort of centralized uh, countries. Um, yeah, so that was, that was our experience. Thank you very much, Sikai. Uh, and now uh, Kenneth's going to talk to us about uh, trying to make better use of analysis to influence budgetary decision-making. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, of course, as she said, my name is Kenneth Mugambe. I've been working uh, as a director of budget uh, for seven years now. Uh, so I could uh, really understand, especially the issues uh, which came up in the morning. Uh, I would also like to thank uh, ODI because I think this topic is uh, very relevant because uh, one of the things we are discussing back home is actually the whole essence of PFM. Uh, because if you cannot have PFM, you're helping to impact on uh, lives or improving service delivery, uh, then you can as well not have you know, PFM. Uh, of course, unfortunately, I'm not so sure that there is any substitute uh, to PFM you know, systems and tools because you know, whatever you do, uh, you know, to be able to you know, allocate resources and spend resources, you definitely need systems. So PFM systems uh, in our... Uh, what, you know, the way we see it uh, is definitely a must. So I think the key question is, uh, of course, as uh, the topic we are discussing now, you know, how best do we use, you know, these PFM systems uh, to guide, you know, our allocation decisions? And uh, that's really what I wanted to focus on. Of course, I was happy to hear from Mark. I don't know if Mark is still here. Yes. Uh, in the morning, uh, you know, he said that... Uh, you know, they used to have this seminar here in the winter, now they are going to have it in summer in May. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I wanted to make a slight adjustment to his proposal and request that he brings it to Kampara, because I believe the summer in Kampara is better than the summer in, yeah. in London in May. <laughs> Okay, I, 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 I'm not in control of the microphones, I don't know what will happen, but I'll try to shout as much as I can. So I was actually proposing uh, that Mark instead makes an adjustment and we take the next seminar to Kampara in May other than in London because I believe the summer in Kampara is better than the summer in London. But anyway, back to the point. Uh, I'm going to highlight, uh, I think, two cases essentially uh, where we have used the... I don't know, maybe... There's a slight lag. <laughs> just a slight lag. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe I need some assistance there. But anyway, Are maybe I could, I could just speak, because I wanted to show... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. essentially what I wanted, uh -huh. uh, to demonstrate uh, some of the work that we do. Uh, in that particular case, uh, we normally <coughs> collect uh, you know, household expenditure data using uh, the Uganda Household Survey. Uh, and this we have done over a number of years, probably, you know, over the last, uh, you know, 20 to 30 years. Uh, so using that information, we are able to disaggregate, you know, the incidence of poverty, you know, by, you know, the lowest administrative unit, uh, the district. And of course, as you can actually see, if you look at the two uh, maps of Uganda, uh, one shows, uh, you know, much darker shades of poverty. And then, of course, the most recent one, uh, some slight, you know, uh, improvement. Of course, we have had the... Uh, a history of a huge decline in poverty, although in the recent past to have seen some, you know, slight increase. But essentially what we have done now is uh, 
looking at that situation, and especially given the fact that there has been some slight increase in poverty, you know, how do we help local governments, uh, districts, uh, particularly those ones which are facing, you know, higher incidences of poverty, uh, to get a bigger allocation of their resources? So we use that information now uh, to try and influence uh, the allocation formula. Uh, just like my colleague from Ethiopia said, uh, in terms of the resources uh, which are from the central government uh, to the local government. Uh, the second point I want to make, again, uh, more or less using the same uh, information, the same analysis, uh, is using, uh, you know, data, uh, at, you know, to analyze the, the, the impact of, uh, you know, not just the resources, but many other factors. Because what we have actually seen is that it's not just uh, resources that matter in terms of, you know, creating the impact and also the outcomes uh, in service delivery. Uh, we've looked at a situation where uh, especially in education and health, if you look at uh, per capita expenditure, we have seen situations where local governments, uh, ideally more is at the same level of development, uh, but one getting higher resources uh, is actually, does a lot worse actually than one which gets, you know, less resources, you know, for the same, you know, interventions uh, in education and health. So, so what that has actually points out too uh, is that uh, in analyzing data, you need to dig deep and find out, you know, what are those other complementary factors that are needed to be addressed if you are to improve, you know, uh, not just the allocative efficiency, but of course, ultimately, you know, the impact that you want to create. Now, the bigger challenge that we normally see, uh, uh, which I think actually came up in the morning, uh, is, uh, you know, how you strike a balance between, you know, this technical analysis, because on the one hand, I mean, if you go back uh, to the, uh, discussions in the morning, uh, uh, especially the question of uh, a strong minister of finance versus a weak minister of finance. We are a strong minister of finance because we believe that we need a strong minister of finance uh, to be able to coordinate and maybe, you know, have a leadership role uh, in guiding these institutions. But the question, of course, is, uh, you know, how do you manage the tension between, you know, the technical analysis that you have done and the political considerations? Uh, I think a good point, again, was made in the morning. In most cases, politicians do not care about, uh, you know, what happens in the wrong run, okay? Of course, in any case, in the wrong run, we are all dead anyway. So they don't know, you know, what will happen. He's there for, he's, he's short term by nature because he's looking at the next election, which is three, five years. So he doesn't care what will happen to the literacy rate, what will happen to, you know, even infant mortality rate in the wrong run. So what he minds about actually is, you know, what are the outputs, the physical outputs I'm actually going to deliver? You know, how many schools am I going to build? Irrespective of whether the schools actually have teachers or even they are delivering education or even the, whether the people are actually present in those schools. You know, how many health facilities am I actually going to construct? Whether the health facilities, you know, you know, have medical workers or not, the politician doesn't mind. Just like one of my ministers said, you know, for him what matters is actually creating some sense of hope for the population. Because he knows, especially in our setup, once the population see a school, whether actually their children are going to the school or not, so, so for them, they have hope. So they hope that actually, because you not actually go and explain to them that yes, so many children now, you know, have this, can read and write. No, what matters is actually that he has constructed a school. So as we do the technical analysis, as we do, you know, using all this data, I think the key question is, you know, how do we actually manage uh, to bridge that gap between the information that we have, particularly we technocrats, and how we use that information to influence the thinking of the, of the politicians. Now, in our situation, we believe that uh, there is absolutely no substitute for that, as I said, because you need that kind of a level of, you know, 
technical analysis to be able to make a case that actually what matters is not necessarily the number of you know, schools you are constructing, but of probably the quality you know, of those schools. Not the number of you know, health units you have actually constructed in, in particular localities, but the functionality you know, of those health you know, institutions. And you can actually do that you know, only if you have you know, information and the, you, know, technical, you have done the technical uh, analysis. Now, maybe the other point I want to uh, talk about is uh, uh, the extent to which we are able to do that. Because to be able to have that kind of uh, uh, analysis done uh, in our setup, uh, one of the key constraints normally is actually the availability of the data itself. Uh, and to what extent do you have that data and actually it is, you know, not, not just accurate, but actually you can consistently generate data over a period of time so that you are able to demonstrate and, you know, track, you know, changes that are happening. Because once you don't, don't have that strong data capacity, then you definitely will not be able uh, to make a case uh, to the politicians. And of course, related to that is the capacity itself, actually, uh, to be able to analyze the data, both in the ministries of finance, but also in the other ministries. Because I think at the end of the day, what matters is, you know, having some kind of convergence of thinking, okay? In the morning, uh, there was this discussion about planning and budgeting. Planning and budgeting are definitely two sides of the same coin. In my opinion, you must ensure that planning and, and budgeting are intertwined, okay? But how do you ensure that planning and budgeting are done? You can only do that, you know, by having the capacities both in the Ministry of Finance, but also being able to engage the line ministries and also probably try to create capacities in the line ministries uh, so that uh, you, you, you make a case and uh, you have people who can buy into your case uh, so that you, you have a common understanding, you know, of what the priorities are and also where the resources should be going. So once that is not done, then uh, you have uh, 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 a huge challenge. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, maybe to make my last point, uh, in Uganda, again, there was a discussion in the morning uh, about some of these new initiatives like PBB. So what we've done uh, is again to use uh, this information to make a strong case for program-based budgeting. Because again, looking at uh, the impact, because what we've seen is uh, uh, in the past, I mean, when we focused on outputs, uh, we kind of uh, neglected the impact or, you know, the outcomes that uh, I, ex I expected to, you know, result from the resources we are spending. So we are now using the information that we have generated to make a strong case for program-based budgeting. Because we know, if you are talking of, uh, say, human capital development, it is not just the Ministry of Education which is going to deliver human capital development. If you are talking about, uh, you know, nutrition or sanitation, it is not just one single ministry, but it's a, a combination of interventions, you know, of various ministries. So using, you know, that information, we are able to make a case, you know, for program-based budgeting. We've actually been able to, of course, at an infant stage, but we've been able to identify a number of programs, okay? And working with the National Planning Commission, the National Planning Authority, we have been able to identify all these programs which cut across the institutions. So going forward, what we are doing now is to try and identify, you know, the interventions under each of these programs. And then, of course, link the interventions under these programs to the administrative units. And then be able to assign, you know, management responsibilities, like somebody talked about it this morning. You know, identify managers under each of these sub-programs or, you know, specific areas of intervention. And then, of course, uh, demand results from these, you know, 
uh, program managers. So we believe that by doing that, then we can actually show a link between the interventions which these ministries are doing, and then of course the outcomes or the impact uh, that we want to create uh, at the end of the day. Uh, I think I would uh, stop at uh, that, and I think she was generous actually. You know, I have been peeping, uh, 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 looking at her clock. So let me stop at that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, <laughs> um, And now Pastor Paolo. And can I remind you all to please tweet if you have something uh, interesting or controversial to say with the uh, hashtag public finance. Thanks. Paolo. Hey, right. Thank you. Uh, I have to confess, over lunch break, I was pretty much regretting my decision <laughs> to accept uh, the conference organizer's invitation to step in for, for, for Fiona. I guess for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, I had very little time to organize my thoughts. But second, also because it's difficult to be a discussant when you don't really know what you're going to discuss. You know, because basically these were, you know, presentations based on recent experiences, personal reflections, not necessarily on papers, documents that I could review in advance. Having said this, I've prepared a few things which I think actually... Um, you know, uh, provide prob hopefully some uh, some interesting um, points for reflection, which are definitely based on on some of the things that I've heard from the from the previous speakers. In my view, I think it's quite clear. It's probably clear to uh, most of the people in the room that this idea of using analysis to inform uh, budget allocation is is a difficult, is a very difficult proposition for a number of reasons. Incentives, generally speaking, are sort of stacked against the use of analysis for uh, allocation decisions or, you know, more generally about evidence-based policymaking, if you wish. We've heard about the uh, role that politicians play and how they basically, uh, I was going to say something rude, but they basically mess up, let's say, you know, the role that technocrat, that they, they ignore the analysis, they ignore the evidence, they use different criteria for taking decisions about where the money should be spent. They worry about easily, uh, you know, visible outputs that they can plant their flags on rather than thinking about, you know, the long-term sustainability, uh, service delivery and, and, and outcome and results indicators. Uh, there's probably something related to the role that bureaucrats play as well, the fact that if the, you know, the classic Niskanen uh, bureau-maximizing bureaucrat, uh, you know, knows that if I put all of my eggs into recurrent spending, then next year I'm likely to get a slightly higher allocation. That, of course, goes against all kinds of r rational criteria for having the best impact, but they respond to the incentives that bureaucrats respond to. We've heard also this morning about how, for example, um, you know, donors take decisions about where to allocate their own resources, which often are delinked from government's own priority setting uh, um, mechanisms, government's own, you know, policy formulation uh, processes and objectives and so on. We know that budgets are very rigid across a number of countries. You have to pay your salaries, you have to pay off your debts. Uh, you know, you have lots of transfers that are based on legal entitlements. So at the end of the day, your space for reallocation is usually a very small percentage of your overall budget. 
therefore leaving you with, with uh, you know, having to have analysis that in the end sort of impinges on a very small percentage of the overall budget. And we could go on and, you know, make the list a lot longer in terms of how difficult it is to approach budget allocation uh, processes and decisions uh, from a rational perspective and using uh, evidence analysis to uh, support those, uh, those decisions. Having said this, I think, you know, there's a few, there's a few um, principles and ideas or, or at least points for reflection that I would like to leave, uh, leave here on the table for us to, to discuss. Um, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of analysis can help? So, it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a point of collecting as much data as possible or, you know, providing very sophisticated uh, uh, models that can tell us lots of things. We should really be able, especially in uh, resource-constrained and capacity-constrained environments, focusing on what do we want out of the analysis or what can the analysis tell us that can help us in the decision-making process. Uh, you know, we spoke a lot about uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, you know, I was, I was happy that uh, Andrew also mentioned the number of other things that governments want to try and pursue. Think about gender equality, think about SDGs, think about human rights. There's lots of different things that can come into the, this picture that can help us decide about what are the kinds of analysis that might be particularly useful to inform decisions around uh, resource allocation, for example. You know, where there are the greatest gaps that uh, government is supposed to fill vis-a-vis -vis different types of objectives that it, that it's, uh, that it wants to, to achieve. Second question is, who is best placed to do the analysis? Who has the access to the relevant information? Who has the access to uh, the, uh, the needed capacity? Uh, this issue of whether I think it's quite interesting to think about whether the analysis function should be something that is we, all of us as, uh, or, or the previous speakers have kind of assumed is something that the Ministry of Finance should do. But there's probably lots of analysis that really belongs to the sectors themselves and that they can carry out more, more, more effectively with better access to information. Uh, and, and I'm wondering whether there's aspects about how the budget system is organized that might uh, affect where the right place for carrying out the analysis uh, really makes sense. So, for example, if you have a, you know, a bottom-up budgeting process where uh, line ministries are basically allowed to submit proposals that are as big as they want, then, of course, the analysis function is pushed to the Ministry of Finance because they need to challenge these submissions and they need to enter into a dialogue with, with line ministries about how they need to prioritize, what they need to prioritize, where do they need to uh, allocate resources and where they need to reduce their proposals. If you have, on the other hand, uh, sort of a top-down budgeting process, then to some extent the Minister of Finance can push that responsibility back to the line ministries because it gives them a ceiling and then they say, okay, you have to stay within that ceiling and now it's your job to sort of tell me about how you set your priorities, how you make your choices and what kind of evidence you use to back up back up those choices um, third and final point in my view is the actually second last point so to me the biggest issue and I think we've heard it repeatedly is how do we shift the incentives around the use of evidence and analysis to inform resource allocation and what does it mean to 
educate politicians in Uganda, for example, or how does it, what does it mean to, uh, uh, you know, think about uh, um, coming to a more evidence-based uh, policy-making process that allows government to decide about alternative uses of resources, either across sectors or, or within sectors. And I think here, yes, the Minister of Finance plays, plays a huge role in terms of uh, constructing a, 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 a database, the narrative that can convince politicians to act differently, as difficult as that is across, an, across a number of countries. Uh, the other way of possibly doing this is to sort of, for the Minister of Finance to sort of help or think about coalitions for change. And here sort of I bring a little bit of, of the work that we do at the International Budget Partnership in terms of uh, promoting change in country budget processes that are based on uh, civil society and you know citizens' needs and priorities. You know, trying to argue for different resource allocations that are different from what the government has and that you know politicians support. But and bringing evidence to bear to try and convince politicians to do things differently. And sometimes. Uh, civil society can do the analysis, Ex you know, people external to government can do the analysis. It, it doesn't always have to be the Minister of Finance or people within government. So analysis and evidence can come from outside as well. It can be used not just within government, it can be used uh, within parliaments, for example. It can come from uh, audit institutions. So I think we also need to go beyond this issue of ministries of finance and line ministries and uh, what kind of analysis and who does the analysis that can inform uh, allocate budget allocation processes and think more about the, the whole ecosystem that exists around the budget process and how you know, better, better transparency, better accountability can lead to uh, a, a differently structured debate around what the priorities are and why governments should uh, change uh, their priorities based on this evidence and based on pressure that may come from different places outside government. In, in, and in many ways, this can be something that the Ministry of Finance can then use internally to sort of try and shift uh, existing incentives. And I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thanks very much, Paolo, and thanks very much to all of our panel. So we've got a challenge there from Paolo to think more specifically about what tools are actually talking about here in terms of what pieces of analytical work, who is doing it, how is it being used, and how is it being challenged against each other. Maybe more than one group is doing analysis and that interacts in some way. So I think it would be good to, uh, in our questions and our discussion, to try and get really concrete about the kind of tools that we're, that we're talking about and how they can be used as part of a much wider process. Uh, so let's move to questions. Anybody have any questions? Uh, yes, and then. evaluation in as, as an analytical tool um, either I mean I've seen interesting examples of 
process of ex-ante evaluation of spending proposals. Um, for example, in Chile, where you know all new programs have to be evaluated by the government, and uh, you know performance indicators and things like that are considered, and net present value and all that kind of thing, and then ex post evaluation, um, which is another important analytical tool, but often seems to be uh, you know not not really taken very seriously um, for various reasons. So your reflections on that. Good afternoon. Um, I promise I won't speak at every single session, but I'll, I'll take this opportunity now. Um, one of the, uh, Segai and I work together on this health value for money exercise. And um, one of the problems we had in coming up with recommendations was that most of the recommendations we could make were about spending more money. And it was actually quite difficult, or, or indeed transferring allocations from one thing to another but it was very difficult to make recommendations linked to outputs or to outcomes. So for example, one of the major problems in Ethiopia is that some regions spend 8% of their resources on health, others spend 16%. And not surprisingly, the regions spending 8% have very bad health outcomes. So there is a very close correlation, and not just at the top end, bottom ends, but across the spectrum between how much is spent and the nature of outcomes. So intuitively, it makes sense to promote higher spending in the less advantaged regions. But then we have two problems. Firstly, those same regions have poor budget execution uh, ratios. So the second recommendation we made was that there should be a task force of the Ministry of Finance to provide training and support to those regions so that budget execution, in particular on the investment budget, could be improved. But I'm not really sure that the Ministry of Finance has the capability to run that task force. So I'm not even sure that recommendation can run. But the other problem we came up with, which was from all the health specialists, they would say to us, oh, this is great, Andrew, more money, but more money doesn't mean better health care. Uh, can't you have a more targeted recommendation that would focus on specific health programs or specific health outcomes? And the problem there is basically a data one that one doesn't have annual data which you could use to monitor programs, or at least not from existing survey data. You would need to have new surveys in order to generate the new data on outputs or outcomes. And I noticed, Kenneth, that your local government formulae seem to allocate more money to the poorer regions in relation to poverty-related indices, but again, they're not targeting particular types of outputs or outcomes. So I guess my question is whether there is wider experience within OECD or, or other countries, from, from other people here, of targeting spending more precisely on outputs or outcomes and getting better results with it. Or, or whether actually, in the short term, what we're recommending is the best we can do. I'd be interested to hear. Um, thanks very much. Um, uh, sorry, a second question from me. Um, related to the question of the use of analysis uh, in sort of discussion about public finance, it seems to be that the analysis needs to be based on data. And I, my question is around um, how, how do you go about getting the data you need for your analysis? And I'm particularly thinking about uh, the use of new technology. So one of the things that's changed in my working lifetime 
is that everyone has one of these. He holds up his mobile phone. Um, I'm aware of, uh, for example, in, uh, during the Ebola crisis in West Africa, uh, I think there an American company called Geopol was brought in to do phone-based market research, polling of uh, people all over Sierra Leone and around that region to find out had people received a visit from a clinician, had they received a vaccine. They used the feedback from people's phones to allocate the resources. Obviously, that's in an emergency situation. So my question is, is about are you using this type of technology or should you be using this type of technology and how best to sort of harness technology and potentially the role of the private sector in uh, providing you with the data that you need to manage public finance better? Hi, thanks a lot for the excellent presentation. I'm Yulia Dimitri with the PFAS Secretariat. And I have a couple of questions for Tsegai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So I'm very much interested to know about the value for money analysis or assessment that was conducted in Ethiopia. First, how much resource intense those analyses are and how long do they take to be conducted? considering the challenges in Ethiopia. I've been there, so I know how difficult it is to get things done there. And uh, what are the modalities of conducting those analyses? So are those conducted externally or internally by the government officials? And my last question is, I mean, I would be curious to know how they were received, the recommendations and the findings. Andrew mentioned the challenges when it comes to how to come up with specific, you know, recommendation. So how well they were received by the government and the extent to which they informed the resource allocation. And as I'm here, I was wondering if I can take one minute to introduce uh, a module that the PFAS Secretariat has developed and focus particularly on the subnational government PFAS assessment and the service delivery. So we have revised the subnational government uh, framework. And as part of it, we have introduced the service delivery module. And the inspiration, I mean PFAS service delivery, so there is, there is quite you know, a long way. And the inspiration was actually when we were in Ethiopia to conduct a PFAS assessment training. The main focus of the government and the development partner there was we are conducting seven PFAS assessments at the subnational level, how we can use the PFAS findings and the PFAS assessment and the subnational government PFM performance to identify bottlenecks in service delivery. Our initial thinking when we started working on it was if we could come with a set of indicators, PFI-like indicators and dimensions, which would help us to assess the extent to which the performance of the PFM system at the subnational level impact the service delivery. But the main challenges to come with those indicators was that you have completely different service delivery arrangements, the funding. So to put all that country context and the service delivery arrangements in a standardized PFI indicators was, was quite challenging. 
So that's why we came up with a set of diagnostic questions around the PIFA framework, and I'll finish. And the framework document along with the service delivery module is out for public consultation. And I really invite you all to have a look at the PIFA website and provide your comments and suggestions, considering your experience. Thank you so much. <coughs> Thank you. And just one last question, then we'll go to the panel. Hello. I'm Duncan Cook. I head the analytical team that does resource allocation for local government in England. Um, I'm interested in the, the point about schools and hope. It reminds me of bin collection in, uh, in the UK. And also interested in the, the spread of your investment parks um, as a result of political intervention. We have the opposite in England. Um, we also get around the incentive problem by not committing to any future policy, which is a little hack that you could do. Um, love all the, out the uh, outcome stuff, and we're also only just getting around to it. Um, but I'm interested in the role of analysis in your countries, where you're perhaps using it to help illustrate trade-offs between central control and local choice, where perhaps you, help, you, get to, you get to understand the mechanism by which money turns into a thing that you want. Um, but then how does money and allocating uh, resources in different areas uh, help you figure out what politically you want, where it might be a balance between control centrally and um, choice locally? Thank you very much. Right, we'll just go to the panel. So just one more. Uh, I'll, there'll be another round oh, in a moment. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. So go ahead, Andrew, if you want to answer any of those questions. Um, perhaps starting with uh, Ivor's one uh, on um, evaluation, um, going back to the, the beginning and, and um, uh, essentially agreeing uh, with him to say how valuable um, ex ante uh, evaluation in particular is uh, for uh, setting expectations. Because uh, so, so often when policies implemented, the goalposts move once there's a greater sense of awareness of what's going to be achieved or not. Uh, be achieved, where uh, some ex ante evaluation helps uh, establish uh, some boundaries around what was actually going to be delivered at the at the beginning, um, and with uh, uh, ex post, um, I think you know one of the observations has been how often it can occur um, uh, too quickly or, or too soon before benefits are are, um, are fully achieved and. It brings uh, the f brings out the fact that many um, policies upon implementation don't actually have a benefit realization plan or some way of understanding how those benefits are going to to accrue uh, over time. Um, a bit like uh, how I said, spending reviews I thought was an overused term for a number of uh, variations within that within that basket. Um, either I'm left wondering whether uh, evaluation's an overused term too, because I, I kind of have respect for, for it as a um, professional discipline and for the social scientists out there who have studied, uh, you know, have completed a degree uh, in it, and we tend to uh, think of evaluation as something that can be that form of exercise with all of the integrity it uh, contains. Uh, and then there's a whole lot of other kinds of uh, activities that are called evaluation too, but mainly may not reach that that standard. Um, the uh, I think the, the challenge for I have with uh, ex post evaluation is when was a policy decision made based on an evaluation, uh, and uh, um, you know just how difficult we talk about the difficulty of connecting uh, decisions to the budget process. 
uh, it seems very hard to connect evaluations to um, policy decisions as well. Um, yeah, just to briefly comment on some of the questions. Uh, about evaluation, um, ex ante, uh, the different agencies in Ethiopia, uh, <coughs> they have some sort of ad hoc system of uh, doing uh, uh, like a feasibility study, but it's not uh, widely um, disseminated, so people don't really know. So because of that, there is perception of um, uh, like inequality, uh, you know, the sort of... Um, uh, sensitivity in a federal system like Ethiopia. Um, uh, so one of uh, our recommendations from the fiscal equity study was actually um, whether they do, whether they have a system of um, ex-ante evaluation or not, you need to go and ask them. Then maybe they can find and tell you, oh yes, we have done this sort of study. Uh, but without going, you, you, would, you will never get it. Um, Ex-post evaluation, no. Uh, there isn't. Uh, for some of the big programs, like the social, uh, the safety net program we had in rural areas, now also we are starting urban areas, then some donors, they do, uh, because I think they are, uh, they are expected to do so. But, but government doesn't, doesn't really, really do. And this value for money study is kind of a first step towards that um, as well. Um, the question for Andrew, I think, <laughs> I am not in a position to comment on that, but thanks for enriching the um, the speech. Uh, but I think some people will will, will comment on that um, about how how we get our data. Uh, so, Ministry of Finance, we have this IBEX integrated uh, budget and uh, expenditure uh, system, where Channel One and Channel Two data are are collected. So, Channel One is uh, budget data managed by the Ministry of Finance and the regional counterparts. So it comes from the tax revenue or from budget support from, from donors. And we have the channel two where donors give to the ministry directly. And the ministry and the regional bureaus <coughs> implement this channel one and channel two go through the IBEX system. Uh, for the channel three, it's directly managed by NGOs. And, uh, and there is no way of really accounting this when government is doing budget and expenditure. So this is actually one of the challenges because there is resource duplication, you know, and Joe building a clinic, uh, and then the government is supposed to, to do the recurrent expenditure, but there is always uh, mismatch in this. Uh, but in general, yeah, we use the Ministry of Finance data from the IBEX. We also, for the health, we also use DHS for the outputs and, and outcomes. We also use some, some household surveys uh, in the country. So these days, the household surveys, DHS, they are done using um, I, uh, the copy. So there is like, they are filling the data uh, in real time. Um, so there is a bit of technology being used uh, in the country in the survey and also in the Ministry of Finance. Um, Julia's, uh, was it Julia? Ju yeah. Um, for our experience for the value for money for health, because it was really requested by the Ministry of uh, Finance, um, and the Ministry of Finance was you know, very supportive of um, when we want data and stuff like that. Um, so it wasn't much uh, resource intensive. Um, and uh, it took uh, longer than we thought because the people in the Ministry of Finance ho had also other uh, assignments. So sometimes, you know, the IMF would have like a meeting for a week 
and then so we would have to wait until they have time. So because we didn't do it ourselves, we were just giving guidance. Um, so, so this was really, even though we helped them, it was, you can say it was internally done by the Ministry of Finance. In terms of how it was received, whether it was used in, in, the, in, in the budget, there was some time inconsistency there. Uh, but uh, the study we did on the, on the um, fiscal equity, uh, because there was this perception of inequity in the country, despite actually the government giving too much weight for, for equity, like the industrial parks and the universities being built in a remote, remote areas, because every region wanted a university in their area, even though uh, going to university is, is based on lottery basis. So even if you're born in, you are born in the north, it's possible that you go to a university in the south. So it doesn't really matter where the university is located. But because of this pressure from, from government, government is forced to build university in a very, very remote area. Uh, so um, in, in the parliament, the prime minister, when he was giving his uh, uh, report for the 2011 Ethiopian calendar, uh, mm -hmm. the Parliamentarians was, were asking, you know, um, why don't you uh, build a, a, a railway in our village? Uh, why not? There is no industrial park in our area. Those things. So I think our analysis through the Ministry of Finance on the fiscal equity and yeah on the fiscal equity actually uh, gave them confidence to tell uh, the. The parliamentarians, you know, we, we, we are doing this study uh, and, and then um, that there is equity is being given a lot of weight. Uh, so somehow I think it, it kind of helped in that. But in the, in the resource allocation, probably in the future, I think it will be, um, it will be taken into consideration. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, now on the issue of uh, uh, evaluation, uh, in the recent past in Uganda, we have started streamlining our public investment management system. Uh, and actually picking from examples like Chiri. Uh, so we are looking at uh, a situation where uh, we have defined a number of steps. Uh, for example, a project might, must go through. And at each step, of course, there are a number of things you must, uh, you are expected you know, to do uh, before you can uh, you know, move on the project the next step. Uh, so we think actually there is a, uh, a strong case, you know, for, you know, ex ante either in terms of feasibility studies, you know, to be able to make a case uh, for a particular project. And of course, even ex-post, actually, we have done one uh, 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 exercise on uh, uh, universal primary education. Uh, and the findings were actually quite revealing uh, in terms of uh, the constraints and in terms of, you know, what needs to be, you know, changed, you know, moving forward uh, to the next, uh, you know, stage. I think the key question is uh, uh, one of uh, the extent to which you are able to undertake you know, those processes uh, in terms of the effectiveness, uh, but also in terms of the timeliness of you know, the exercise. Because you know, again, going back to the issue of the politicians, you know, they want to see a project actually moving extremely fast. Okay? So if you are going to subject a project to so many different stages and processes as we are doing, you know, they tend to lose patience. So they want to see a project done, you see, once they have made a political decision, they want to see a project moving and then going into implementation. But of course, on our side, we think uh, there's a strong case for that. Now, Andrew uh, did talk about uh, this uh, exercise you, you, you did, uh, the value for money exercise uh, in Ethiopia. I think my key 
challenge, the key challenge I would have with that is, uh, of course, the exercise per se is good, you know, but I mean, if you come up uh, with more and more money, you know, additionality, additionality, from our experience, what we actually see is the moment you engage in a, you know, every single intervention, you know, requires additional resources. So once the issue becomes more and more additional resources, they tend to negate actually the uh, issues of improved efficiency, issues actually of value for money themselves. There's no single line in ministry that does not want to advocate for additional resources. My colleagues are here. Yeah, I mean, if you ask them when we are discussing the budget, for every single intervention, they want additional resources. So if, you know, the fiscal space is limited uh, and every single intervention wants additional resources, then how will you be able to achieve, you know, that value for money actually you are talking about? How will you be able to achieve efficiency, you know, in the spending you are talking about? Because every single institution will come up actually with additional demands, you know, demands for additional resources. Now, on the issue of, uh, again, the, the issue you talked about, you know, how we use uh, uh, these variables. Yes, yes we use poverty uh, because uh, we believe that uh, at some point, anyway, you need a minimum level of funding to be able to deliver, you know, some minimum services. So that's why we are re really looking at poverty because if you are a poorer district, you know, you have a lot of constraints. So there is some minimum level of allocations that you need. But also what we realize is that uh, some of the variables actually we are favoring, you know, a uh, uh, richer district. Now, if you take the example of uh, education, capitational grant, one of the key variables we used to allocate capitational grant was actually the number of children in school, okay? So meaning if you are a local government, a district which has more children uh, and probably you're actually richer, you would actually get more money. But if you are a local government which has less children, because probably those children have not gone to school, then naturally you actually get less money. So the question would be, you know, where, when would those children actually who are already disadvantaged, you know, be able to go to school? Because they might be actually school-age-going children, but they are actually not going to school. So if you simply looking at, look at the number of children in school, for a particular district, so if one district has, you know, 100,000, uh, maybe because they have 90%, you know, uh, of the children going to school, Yet there's another district which has maybe 50,000, and yet they have like 40,000 not in school, but of school going age, then definitely you are disadvantaging the poorer district. So we tend to look at all those you know, different variables and see how to strike you know, a, a balance. Now on the issue of uh, the tools, I think on the one hand you are talking about the monitoring tools, uh, uh, and then of course the tools which you use to generate data that then you use you know, in uh, enhancing your analytical capacity. Now in terms of monitoring, I mean, you have to look at uh, a country-specific uh, situation. Uh, of course, a mobile phone now is uh, something which is, uh, you know, available probably across, you know, even uh, the remotest villages in our countries. But there are some things you cannot use, for example, in our system. Uh, if you want to do, like, a clocking-in system, for example, a biometric system, uh, to be able to track uh, teacher and pupil absenteeism, I'm sure it can be done here in London, it cannot, but I, I don't know to what extent it can be done in Uganda, you know, where only 22% of the population have access to electricity. So even if you are to invest in uh, solar energy or whatever, the question is, do you actually have those resources, first of all, to be able to invest in those systems, uh, simply to use the systems to track, you know, the uh, student attendance or teacher attendance. So you really have to look at the systems uh, which, are, which can apply, you know, to different situations. But in terms of, uh, of course, the Data, like I said, in our case, we do generate household survey data. 
of course, through surveys, and also the administrative data, actually, which is generated by the ministries. So we look at, you know, a combination of all that information to be able to analyze and look at the trends and see, you know, to make some policy decisions and, you know, uh, cases out of that data. Yes. Thank you, Yeah, just a couple of very, very quick points. One on ex post evaluation, and I mean, to some extent, we can think, we can think that in many ways, many countries already have an ex post evaluation system in place, and that's called the external audit. We can say everything we can about, you know, there's lots of things to say about the quality of external audit, about the coverage of external audit, about the extent to which it covers performance rather than not, but. Uh, no, I think there's something to be said about building existing institutions rather than creating new ones that might uh, duplicate functions. Um, and I think there's actually a lot of, even in countries where external audit function is not, doesn't function amazingly well, I think it still is an underexploited source of information, an underexploited source of uh, uh, a, a mechanism for accountability that could be that could be used much, much, much better. This is just an observation, sort of building on on your point with which I, I agree. And then the only other point is on the use of technology, use of mobile phones. There's some interesting interesting stuff going on if you think about. Uh, uh, participatory budgeting at the local level around the world. There's an increasing use of, uh, you know, online voting mechanisms, online project submission mechanisms that involve, you know, you're able to basically scale up the the level of citizen participation in the decision making process around resource allocation through apps and mobile phones. So that's definitely an area where there's there's been a lot of a lot of movement. Clearly, though, you know, there's there's also a lot of a lot of stuff that happens in terms of citizens complaining about some service delivery issue, whether it's potholes on the street or problems with uh, you know garbage collection, etc. And that, of course, provides information that the government the government can immediately use to allocate resources to solving a specific problem. The the question there, of course, is usually one about about scope and scale. Basically, it's 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 fine to. Uh, uh, you can easily think about ways to use new technologies and, and mobile phones for something that is local uh, and something that is, you know, sort of very specific to uh, that can generate a, a direct intervention. But of course, it becomes a lot more difficult when you're thinking about, you know, big budgetary choices about whether you should spend more on health or education or defense or whatever else, uh, or you know, how much debt the government should uh, should go into. There are some interesting initial things going on. Half a second, half, half a minute, <laughs> about using budget simulators to sort of uh, run online surveys, citizen surveys about some of these bigger, bigger issues. It's very much incipient, and you know, there's, it's still kind of being tested. But I definitely agree with you that there's a lot of scope for look, looking into that as a, as a possible area of future, future intervention that might provide very useful data for resource allocation purposes. Okay, thank you. And um, we've got time for another round of questions if everyone is brief. And um, I'd also particularly like to hear any sector ministry perspectives if that's possible. Yes, go ahead. Uh, Beaches Muganda from the Partnership for African Social and Governance Research. <laughs> um, I, I think there's something missing from this conversation. 
and this is the role of universities at least back home in Africa um, this is the reservoir for all the tools and knowledge and they have often complained that they have been ignored and we are saying that the education coming out of this uh, universities is not relevant this is really an opportunity to give them to deal with real life issues, data, and make a contribution and produce the kind of students who really will come and take your positions and do a good job. Good afternoon, everyone. I am called Derek Namisi. I have heard a lot since morning about education and health sectors. I am from Uganda and I work in the education sector, particularly in the budget office. So most of what is said touches me directly and I have a lot of experience in what, what takes place, but I will be brief. I think my comments will come more tomorrow in the issue of technologies and using finance to work for service delivery. The education sector in Uganda, the outcomes are not uh, the best. And when it comes to the funding, naturally we shall be like uh, Oliver Twist, always asking for more. But I would, I would like to relate my experience to what the director says. As we look at more funding for the education sector, we look more at the issue of what is efficient and what is effective in the, shortest, in the shortest run as you try to ask for money because you have to look at the economy as well. Money is not readily available. The best way to allocate would be looking at the, the spending efficiency, but the, 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 the spending requirements, but the money is never readily available. So you look at how to get the money and spend it and have outcomes within the shortest time. So as we talk about all this, we need to look at the issue of efficiency. Data is the best to use in evidence-based allocation. But you'll find, if you come to Uganda, you find that the data is not always readily available. You do not have data immediately. You would need data immediately. You would need to have data on uh, school attendance, performance, infant mortality, absence. You need all that data in the shortest time. But one, it's very expensive. Two, it is hard to access in the shortest time possible. So as we discuss, I would, I would feel that we also need to look at the issue of efficiency, what works in the shortest way and what is cheap. We know the best, the best way is to have data readily available, but it is a, it's, it's expensive. And lastly, before I, I sign off, we need to also discuss the issue of incentivized allocations. Uh, most, of, most of the money looks like it's going into a black hole uh, within our public sector. We need to discuss the issue of using performance to, to inform allocations. The schools which perform best, the hospitals which improve on service delivery should be seen to be given some sort of carrot to encourage allocation as we do the analysis. So as, we, as the education sector, we are looking at the issue of incentivized allocations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to contribute uh, to this discussion in two respects. One, to take on what you said about audit uh, as a source of exposed valuation. But uh, so what we've done, I've worked with the CAGR Control and Auditor General on this, is they've started doing value for money audits. And there are two stages to that. 
So first they do a scan and they say, okay, is something did not work. If it did work, well, nothing ever works. But if it did work, then you sort of leave it alone. But if it did not work, was that because there was a policy error or a design problem? If it was either of these two, then that triggers a full value for money audit. If, however, they find it was a standard PFM problem, it actually moves out of the division. And the division says, this is not a value for money issue. This is a corruption issue. This is an incompetence issue, something. And it goes to the regular audit people who then check you know, how many liters of petrol you spent. I think that's a very good way to do it. But taking on from your point, ma'am, it would not have happened if we did not have civil society and the universities doing value for money investigations and a media that was highlighting the value for money problem. Uh, now, this is not going to happen automatically because no government likes universities. One reason, ma'am, I think our universities don't work properly is governments don't like them to work properly. They're sources of insurrection and governments have got used to it, getting rid of them. Students are terrible things to have around it. You know, these are quasi-autocratic governments at most. So I don't think we're going to have universities, but it is possible to have, therefore, civil society spaces. The second point I wanted to make was an experiment I'm doing in India, which, is, which may be of interest, which is now we have to cut the budget. I mean, we have to reduce expenditure, at least as a percentage of GDP. So you're not even talking about increasing expenditure. So one test, I don't know whether the ministry will take it, I've, I've put forward is this. I'm calling it politely resilience. That, okay, I have a bunch of spending programs, and so far we've been discussing what you'll do with extra money. I'm going to cut your budget. How resilient is your program in terms of outcomes to your, my budget cut? Thank you. Any final question? Uh, yes, there's someone right at the back. Red hand. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Oliver Sorry. I'm Oliver Fiala from Save the Children. Um, I just wanted to follow up on the equity issue, um, which was already mentioned in the example of Ethiopia. And I want wanted to hear what you think, for example, incidence analysis could play a role, um, not focusing only how, for example, poor um, communities benefit from certain services and therefore budget allocations, but also looking at different ethnicities or <coughs> age groups and how that could be implemented into a more equitable allocation of resources. Just to add one one comment, um, really, really pretty fun. We're looking at the moment at Save the Children to expand our work in that area. There's a post until Sunday open, so if you know anyone interested in PFM or you're interested yourself, please have a look. Thank you. All right, we've had a couple of plugs this session. Maybe <laughs> we'll say no more plugs, please. <laughs> right, we've had one uh, question online for Kenneth, who says, um, the question is, what role did analysis um, and the Ministry of Finance play in Uganda's decision to implement universal secondary education through public-private partnerships, and what role did it play in the decision to end the partnerships? So we're just at the <laughs> we're just at the very end. So we've got one minute for everybody to um, answer whichever questions they like and um, any final final remarks. But Andrew, okay, um, very quickly, just a shout out to support the call about uh, connection to universities and uh, to say that. Uh, within our own work at the OECD on, on budgeting, we have a schools for government, uh, schools of government network in terms of reflecting the importance of that. At a um, practical level, would just just uh, to illustrate the point, would say, you know, as a uh, fellow budget director like uh, Kenneth, the number for uh, the number of people who we employ 
who have only experienced the upside of an economic cycle, uh, when for many OECD countries uh, it is the longest economic cycle since the, since the global financial crisis, that universities are a fun, uh, wonderful source of institutional knowledge and memory around uh, what the labour market doesn't necessarily provide in a particular uh, time. Uh, and so the, just, you know, there are lots of other examples, but uh, so many points of value that uh, access from a university can, uh, can assist with. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, the, three com the, three, the three speakers, I think it was more of a comment and kind of accepted. Uh, Olivier specifically asked me about the equity consideration in the, in the Ethiopian case. Um, there is a lot of uh, consideration to rural gender, rural urban gender, and also uh, the regions are divided into developing regions and the other regions. The, um, so usually uh, um, this is taken into account, especially at federal level. Um, so the developing regions, which are mostly pastoralist regions, regions they, have, they, they get special attention. However, uh, since uh, regions have autonomy, uh, it's up to them. For example, uh, how much to allocate, as Andrew was saying, how much to allocate for education, for health, you cannot really force, force them because it's the arrangement, the, the, the power. Uh, but of course you can suggest, you can train them and then influence their sort of um, allocation. Uh, but we also have this, uh, th this uh, block uh, grant is just given to them and then it's up to them uh, to allocate it. Uh, but we also have this uh, specific uh, grant uh, where it sort of takes into account the shortcomings in each, um, in each region and then the Ministry of Finance has guidelines as to how uh, they can spend this uh, spe special uh, grant. Thank you. Antenna? Okay, I think uh, the specific question on uh, universal primary education. Uh, you, you, universal primary education, just like many, many policies, uh, cannot just be simply uh, a, a decision based on a you know technical analysis. Uh, in most cases, there is a political decision, and what I think is important is uh, for the technical you know analysis to back up or at least to help in a, uh, the form and uh, you know what form maybe that political decision is implemented uh, to ensure that you avoid the you know, wastage of resources. And I think in the case of Uganda, that's exactly what happened. So there was a, a political decision uh, uh, to implement universal primary education, but also there were a number of studies actually which we did uh, when we did uh, our poverty eradication action plan, which actually pointed out the need to have universal primary education. Uh, the issue, of course, was uh, the form and the, you know, that it took actually uh, during implementation. Uh, I think there was something else I wanted to comment on. Um, the, yeah, the issue of universities. Uh, we, we believe that there is actually a, a strong role for universities. Uh, maybe the question also is uh, whether universities are able to uh, reclaim that you know, a space and actually fill in the, the gap. Uh, of course, in our countries, uh, most of the policies are actually not you know, researched. Uh, so we believe actually there is, a, there is actually a space you know, for universities to be able to influence you know, policies and also undertake, uh, you know, the evaluation uh, uh, whether exante or expos that was being talked about. In fact, one of the things we are doing now under our public investment management system is actually to partner, you know, with Makere University 
uh, to be able to create capacity, you know, in PIMS, uh, in the public investment management uh, uh, system, so that we are able to produce, you know, graduates, you know, who appreciate the policies, I mean, the, the issues, but also actually to be able to have capacity themselves, actually, you know, for example, to, you know, uh, participate in feasibility studies and also in the ex-post evaluation. Thank you. Thank you. I will give up my minute for the sake of coffee. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to... Thanks. Thanks to, thanks to Paolo's selfless uh, <laughs> sacrifice. We are only two minutes over, le over time. I'm an academic, and this is a huge success in our world. So, um, also, uh, I'm going to break the rule and make a final plug. So we have three plugs. The final plug is the, second, the last session, which is at 4 o'clock, which is getting money where it is needed, when it is needed. So please enjoy your coffee, and please thank the um, uh, panel speakers again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.